Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. James Milligan. And I'm one of your hosts, Marla. And we have our other host here, Dave, with us too. And today we will be discussing the paper titled A Primary Care Provider's Guide to Preventative Health After Spinal Cord Injury, which was published in the Topics in Spinal Cord Injury Rehabilitation in 2020. This paper was submitted by Asia's Primary Care Committee. And our guest today is Dr. James Milligan. James Milligan is a family physician with the Center for Family Medicine, Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is director for the CFFM Mobility Clinic, an interprofessional primary care clinic with a focus to improve primary care for individuals with spinal cord injury and other physical disabilities. The clinic is dedicated to clinical research in SCI primary care, working closely with the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute and the former Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation. He is an associate clinical professor at McMaster University and adjunct clinical professor at Western University. He is a clinical specialist for mobility and falls with the Schlegel Research Institute for Aging. Welcome, Dr. Milligan. It's great to have you, sir. Oh, thanks for having me. Very excited about it. So we just wanted to start off by getting a feel for what your motivation and goal was in writing this article and, and what you hope that the clinicians reading this article would take away after reading this work. Yeah, it, it's an important article. It comes... And, and they all are as part of that special edition in topics of spinal cord injury rehab that is really dedicated all to primary care and how to, and how to help uh, primary care providers treat what is often a complex chronic condition in spinal cord injury. And uh, most primary care providers just really don't feel too comfortable or, you know, lack the the knowledge and sort of expertise to really deal with it properly with no lack of trying. It's just, there's a number of barriers that impede that. So this article in particular, when we look at preventative healthcare is really just encompassing everything that we should, we should try to do for individuals with spinal cord injury within the primary care environment, which unfortunately isn't often done very well. So hopefully it adds as a, a really good resource for all primary care providers out there. I thought one of the great points that you make in this article is sort of talking about the teamwork that it takes to take care of people living with spinal cord injuries, you know, it's primary care providers, spinal cord injury specialists, urologists, just nursing teams, you know, the person living with the spinal cord injury themselves, their caregiver. Can you talk a little bit about how you know, spinal cord injury specialists that may be listening, primary care providers that may be listening can work together to provide the best possible care. Talk about some of the challenges that maybe you've encountered in the collaboration of care and how you might overcome some of those obstacles. Yeah, thanks. You know, that's a big part of the whole thing. It kind of comes down to the teamwork, as you mentioned, Marla. And it it talks about like effective communication, which is such a barrier within healthcare. It shouldn't be. It comes as a surprise actually to a lot of people that that within healthcare, we often, you know, there's these silos of care between like acute care and community care and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and quite often 
patients get sort of shuttled between these things. And there's like not the, not the best communication between the practitioners that are part of the team for the individual with spinal cord injury. And this can actually apply to almost any condition, really. But it becomes glaringly obvious when you're starting to talk about complex chronic conditions like SCI. Um, spinal cord injury just seems to shine a light on everything that we don't do very well within healthcare. So, you know, there's lots of room to improve. So anyway, when a team is so valuable to these individuals. So, you know, one of the things that we do with this, you know, article about preventative care is we talk about what the primary care providers should do. But at the same time, it's not reliant entirely on the primary care provider. And we don't want to suggest that because there's been a lot of articles out there and Dr. McCall wrote one in, I think it was 2018, that really talked about, you know, we can't ask primary care providers to perhaps do more. They're already sort of stressed and doing all kinds of different things. We have to support them to do more. And the support of that involves having a team of a bunch of different people that can specialize in some of the complex areas that people with spinal cord injury need, so they're specialists. And it also involves them in get, giving the right resources and tools to primary care providers so that they can also actually know what they're supposed to do and get the appropriate resources in place. And so lastly, when I come back to this you know, team and communication, an area that's been starting to improve a lot more in the last little while is really just facilitating like electronic communication between specialists and primary care, you know, access, patient access to electronic medical records through patient portals. These are all not new things, but really advancing. And, and actually over the last couple of years with, you know, COVID, if anything positive came out of the, you know, the pandemic, it's been some restructuring and realignment of the way that we do healthcare that's actually going to be, has proven to be beneficial and will be beneficial as we move forward in terms of maybe linking people better. But lastly, I'd also say is, you know, we've always recognized that the individual with spinal cord injury is at the forefront of all of this, right? It's all about them and they're so valuable in terms of the way that they can advocate for themselves and you know, know their own health history and be able to provide that, especially to primary care providers who sometimes aren't sure what, what to do. The, the um, individual themselves is just super valuable. So I'm sitting here in a large academic medical center, and we pride ourselves in being a one-stop shop for spinal cord injury care, all the way from the time of the trauma through the lifetime and we are a spinal cord injury model system. Can you talk a little about, and you touched on it already, what a primary care physician would expect um, in plugging themselves into a system of experts like this that aren't geographically under one roof? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you have a team of a lot of supports, and I think, you know, Dave, we talk about individuals with spinal cord injury actually having a team. And we talk about individuals with spinal cord injury who have no team, right? So you're talking about one there that, that has a, a well-supported team. They may not all be under the same roof, but they have all those people together. That is important. So then from a primary care perspective, where you fit into that for the most part is dealing with primary care things, right? You can, you can often be 
not perhaps having to do everything, which is great, but you can deal with the primary care things, which is preventative health, like immunizations, cancer screening, you know, breast, colon cancer screening. You can treat some, you know, hypertension or, you know, cardiometabolic things. You can sort of be left to do those things and, and certainly be there for kind of acute things that pop up. Like if somebody has an upper respiratory tract infection and then they, they'll be coming to you and, and you'll manage that. But the nice thing is, is if things kind of get complicated, then ideally in that situation, you can reach out to one of your specialist colleagues and be able to get the support. So, I mean, if it, if it was an upper respiratory tract infection, but it's in a, a higher level spinal cord injury, and you're really worried about them developing a pneumonia or, you know, they're on a ventilator and this kind of thing, hopefully you'd be able to get some timely advice from your respirology colleague and, and, and be able to help out in the appropriate way. And if you're not geographically situated together, then maybe that occurs through an email or picking up the phone or something like that. I mean, that's the ideal, the ideal situation. I would say though, that unfortunately it doesn't really happen that well. That's, you know, comes back to the communication breakdowns that we talked about where we're not always set up with those instantaneous communication aspects. And, and then it just comes back to a lot of people aren't, set up with all the specialists and they're only relying on a primary care provider to do all of these things. Which is such a shame, but if we move on to the, the three examples in your paper of what you might do as the primary care physician and you list immunization as the first. So is, especially in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, has there been a historical priority for immunization against respiratory conditions in spinal cord injury? It has been advocated for sure. Like a lot of the guidelines, the Paralyzed Veterans of America guidelines and many others have always advocated for that. And any national guidelines, worldwide guidelines would always say it because the um, spinal cord injured population, although not studied specifically maybe for them, they would be always cons considered into the high or higher risk group of neurological disorders, the way that they would classify them. So absolutely. And depending on the level of injury, um, but usually we would say, often say anything that could involve respiratory muscles. So that can actually go to quite a low injury level, but certainly a higher level injury in the cervical spine would, would definitely necessitate it. Yeah. So I'd say absolutely. The immunizations are, are very important. The problem is, is we don't always do them really well. Again, um, part of that is just to some of the barriers that, you know, come to, to physical barriers and, and other barriers of, of individuals getting into the office and getting immunizations, or it's just sometimes not on, on top of mind when we're seeing people for other acute things. So, but definitely a, a very, very important aspect of things and something that's absolutely within the primary care wheelhouse. I think as we were reading through the paper, I think Dave and I both really appreciated the approach of, you know, just because a person's living with a spinal cord injury doesn't mean that their regular preventative care isn't of the utmost importance, you know, touched on vaccinations, cancer screening, you know, cardiometabolic, as we know, cardiometabolic syndrome and people living with spinal cord injuries things like that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the difficulties in, 
you know, or some of the differences in treating people with spinal cord injuries and some of these preventative medicine categories, you know, cardiometabolic cancer screening, things like that versus somebody that is, you know, neurologically intact living without a spinal cord injury. Yeah. It's um, well, one thing is it just to be aware to do it. Right. So I think we take a bit of time in the article to talk about the fact that we just need to be aware. We're sort of oftentimes have bias towards individuals that have disabilities and spinal cord injury. And we sort of, many times we just see that condition and we don't see beyond it, right? Everything's related to that. We don't think about the fact that people are living longer and developing the same conditions as those who are able-bodied. So that's definitely, you know, point number one. And as people are aging with spinal cord injury, then it's important that we, you know, take care of their health and you know, it's a shame to develop something like, you know, colon cancer in somebody, you know, if you've never tested it or cervical cancer. So that's important. You know, part of it is just, again, being able to, you know, bring people into the office is, uh, you know, unfortunately important to be able to do some of these things. So, you know, when we talk about, for example, like a pap test and, you know, many primary care offices just are not physically accessible whether that be from the parking lot, you know, even having physically accessible parking spots to being able to get into the door, you know, if you get that far, you know, even being able to get into the exam room and most primary care providers have, you know, a high exam table that's not, it doesn't go up and down. It can be so difficult. So those are, you know, the physical accessibility issues are definitely the very obvious ones for doing a lot of screening, like cancer screening, that kind of stuff and getting people in the office. But it's not just our office too, it's about the community as well. So when you do these things and you can set these things up, you have to have a really good idea of where you can send individuals for some of these tests where they are accessible and they, you know, they'll do these. So it, it's good to develop sort of that repository of laboratories, diagnostic imaging places within your community that you know will, will be able to accommodate individuals like this. And usually there is that type of a thing. And, and so when you make referrals and you do these things, it's just really super important that we communicate the types of needs that the individuals would require or even get on the phone and talk to the place. And once you have those places set up, then usually things move pretty well. And then just lastly, like beyond the physical accessibility issues, there's just like touched on it briefly when I talked about our biases, but there's just the attitudinal accessibility issues as, as we like to call it. And that's just, you know, us not understanding what an individual with spinal cord injury has to go through on a daily basis just to get up and start the day and this type of thing. So it's just, you know, maybe they need afternoon appointments so that they, you know, can get their bowel care done in the morning. You know, maybe they need to have an attendant there. Maybe they need a longer appointment. Chances are they do. And just, and maybe the staff just needs to have some disability literacy as well in order to understand these things and, and make appointments go well. Because, I mean, even if we look at the able-bodied population, I mean, it's often not an great experience to go for a mammogram or a pap or anything like that and it's it's inconvenient it's uncomfortable it's everything like that well it's it's 100 times worse for somebody who also you know would maybe has to plan their whole week around doing that appointment so at the end of the day we just you know have to do better with that stuff but there's lots of things we can do 
I think you touch on such an important point. I mean, I just think that's such an important part of accessibility that we don't necessarily think about. You know, we think about the parking lots, we think about, you know, the ramps, things like that. But is there truly medical providers or team or staff that understands what it means to take care of a person with a spinal cord injury appropriately in the office? We take a blood pressure and it's, you know, 110 over 60. Well, that might be great for you or me, a person with a spinal cord injury, that might be a sign of something significantly dangerous going on. You know, how do we transfer a person with significant lower extremity spasticity safely on to, even if we do have the right type of bed, how do we do that safely? Is there any like recommendations that you'd make for either primary care provider or spinal cord injury provider, really anyone to help educate the staff and even themselves to make sure that the experience for that person coming in with a spinal cord injury is as safe and comfortable as possible. I, I always talk about just trying to put yourself into somebody else's shoes and get to understand things. I think it's really important, again, coming back to the individual with spinal cord injury to educate their providers a little bit about you know, if they do need something like afternoon appointments, if they do need a bit longer appointments, you know, to bring that up with their primary care provider and why. I mean, it is, it's a bit sad and terrible to say that the, that the individual or the patient has to do this, but, and you know, that we don't know it, but that's just the reality, right? And, and I think a lot of individuals with spinal cord injury have become very used to that. And as I said, they end up being, you know, great advocates for their, for their own health and end up being pretty wise patients. So that is important. But my, my um, recommendations to primary care providers is really just listen to the patients. You know, one thing we, we kind of talk about is it's not realistic at this time to make every primary care office fully accessible. Like where we work, we've done that. You know, we have this mobility clinic and we have a high-low table and overhead lift, a bigger, you know, room, you know, electronic door openings, wheelchair scale. But we can't assume that that's going to be the reality for everybody. Um, There's a lot of investment that goes into that. And in many parts of the world, primary care providers are actually small business owners. So they're, you know, kind of counting their pennies and what they put money into and, some of their space, they many times they don't own their space, they rent it, there can sometimes not be a great deal of change that they can make. And even though that we have these great disability legislations in many countries, it's still a long way before we get a lot of that stuff really in place. And certainly with, you know, what I do target quite a bit is sort of like new medical offices and new medical graduates. Because those people are often starting a new practice and have some ability to change their leasehold or their rental spaces or build to suit. And that's really important. You know, that's an avenue to kind of get some some people. But at the end of the day, it's not, again, all about physical accessibility. And we have to, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we do have to be careful about that. It is so, so much goodwill and proper care can be gained out of the attitudinal accessibility and the dis you know i don't really like the term disability literacy too much but understanding and accommodating goes a long way perhaps maybe even you might argue maybe even further than the physical accessibility might 
And, you know, a lot of primary care providers do some really unique things. The other thing we talk about is sometimes partnering with community places a little bit, like hospitals, sometimes being able to use some of their facilities if you do need to assess a patient and you're just unable to, or a place that is accessible that you might know of, and also doing home visits. Like, you know, the home visit is uh, from a primary care provider is not something that you know, we only hear from the 1920s or anything. It's still being done these days and quite often can be used for those individuals that just can't get to the author. Dr. Milligan, you talk a little bit about this shifting of the burden onto the patient because they might not be able to get certain things done in certain places. So what does that mean from your perspective for the necessity to have them self-report certain information and how much you can rely on that information uh, based on maybe what you're expecting the last time they had the measurement done or how accurate the previous measurement was if it wasn't done by you? I think it depends a little bit on the patient and maybe how you have them collecting their medical data in terms of how much you might rely on some values. So but I would say that most are, you probably would, unless you had reason to think that things were just, just not right. But I think, you know, as we enter into this age of having more patient involvement in much of what we do and, and more transparency and access to our records, like, which is really their record, you know, within our electronic medical record. I think that's going to become less of an issue because it's just going to be like people, essentially primary care in most places ends up being a person's medical home, right? Healthcare is different, obviously, in different countries and different jurisdictions. And, but, you know, primary care has kind of always been the medical home. And so we tend to house most of their medical data. And having patients have some access to that through portals or apps and that kind of stuff, I, I really only see as a, as a good thing. It, it just helps patients be more in tune with their own health care. It helps to ensure the accuracy, Dave, of what you're mentioning, rather than it just being kind of self-report. So I, I'm hopeful we'll get more of that. But I, I do get patients who come in with stuff that they've written down and that sort of thing. But you can often, you know, a lot of times you just know that they're very accurate in what, what they're doing. And, and again, them being, you know, knowledgeable about their own medical care is, is very important. In our last podcast episode, we actually discussed what's known as the Asia exam or now the INSCI and the accuracy of self-report with an exam as important as that to this population. And I often think about just the simplicity of body mass of weight in medical data and how difficult it can be to weigh someone in a chair, either because you can't weigh the chair itself because it's too heavy for the scale or just the challenges with transferring. And this is some of the most basic medical data that we would think of in a population that wasn't paralyzed. And I've even heard horror stories like of pregnant women with spinal cord injury not being directly weighed and being asked to self-report their weight during pregnancy. That's quite, quite a challenge. Yeah, that's a big one in terms of weight and that kind of stuff. To be honest with you, within primary care, if an individual's in a wheelchair and they can't stand, 
90% of primary care locations, you're never going to get a weight on them. You know, as I said, within our mobility clinic, we're lucky that we have a, a wheelchair scale, but that's definitely, definitely not the norm. And those do cost a few thousand dollars to purchase. So it's not, you know, just something that somebody can do right away and you have to have the space for it. It's definitely, it definitely can be important if a person does have a physiatrist, because oftentimes, you know, they may be seeing them in a, in a clinic periodically where they can get the weight done there. But it becomes a real problem if they don't have a physiatrist. And certainly within our jurisdiction here, we have physiatry in Canada is actually pretty, pretty sparse for the most part, especially if you get outside of a, of a major city. So many individuals with spinal cord injury don't have a physiatrist or don't attend that kind of a facility. And I'm sure that's the same in some rural, definitely the same in rural parts of the US and that. And globally, you hear the same stories. So yeah, people would never get weighed, um, which is a real shame because, you know, it, it, it makes a difference for so many things that we do. So we just, we have to do better with that. And, you know, with our initiative as a mobility clinic and that, that you know, we're, we're trying to do that type of a thing, but it, it's, it's a work in progress for sure. So Dr. Milligan, this has been absolutely awesome. We want to leave you with kind of our last question that we like to ask everybody that comes on here. And that is, you know, if we give your paper to the leading primary care experts, the leading spinal cord experts, what does the next, what's the next step? What, what research question would you want them to be inspired to attack next? What remains unknown about the topic? What would you hope that somebody takes from your paper and is inspired to kind of further your work? Oh, great question. Marla. So first of all, I'd love you to just give that article to any primary care provider you can come across on the street. Because one of the biggest things is it's just a tough audience to get at, right? The primary care providers, as you know, have very few people with spinal cord injury, like with an entire caseload of maybe thousands of people, they may have one or two people. So there's just, you know, it's not their fault by you know, neglect sort of thing that they don't have the expertise or not taught things in school. And there's, you know, they're just busy doing other things, right? And, and um, sort of some of the mass population types of things. So yeah, just, you know, for us in the Asia Primary Care Committee, what's been a big objective is, is really breaking into the primary care audience, like, and that's always been an issue, right? So it's trying to get our resources out there, is trying to present them. So, you know, we've presented out a number of spinal cord injury conferences, of course, but we've also started doing some things at family medicine conferences to, to get that word out there. So I think from a research question, I, you know, there's been an awful lot of literature on the barriers to primary care. Like we know that up and down. We don't need to spend any more time or money on that. Like what we need to do is we need to spend our time getting the message out, the knowledge translation out to primary care and not expect them to necessarily do more, but give them the supports to do it. So whether that be some financial support to making offices more accessible and that sort of thing, but also specialist support in the form of easy, efficient, quick question asking to get answers for their patients, that type of thing 
to me and how we can set those things up is the way forward. Really, really stretching the virtual care thing. Like we do a lot of things involving electronic consult where if I have a question about a patient in the office, I don't think that patient needs to see the specialist, but I need an answer from that specialist and I can just email them through a secure system, attach whatever notes and things I need and get an answer back within a few days. That's awesome. It's that kind of things. It's the, the resources and supports that we need. Awesome. That's really great. Thank you so, so much for being here with us. This has been really fun. What a great article and certainly something that we will be passing out and sharing as much as possible. But thank you again so much for being with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the first season of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Primary Care Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, me, David McMillan, and Marla Pitriello, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.